Hi, travelers. I'm Riley. I'm Isabella. I'm Angelica. And this is True Crime International. So, Riley, where are you taking us today? Today, I am taking you to France, one of my favorite places, and we're going to Paris within France. I love Paris. I, too, love Paris. Man, I, like, wish I was there in the 1920s instead of in America in the 2020s. I read this book a couple years ago, and it was about this German spy, this woman german spy who went to paris to like spy on french and she became like this exotic dancer and she was like badass whatever i can't remember her name but it didn't explicitly say that she was going to paris and it just said it just kept like mentioning this like giant metal structure that they were building and it took me like halfway through the book to realize that she was in paris and the giant metal structure was the eiffel tower like i just didn't i did not get it well done Anyways, today we are going to be talking about the murder of Cecile Block and the pockmarked killer. So a background on Cecile. She was 11 years old. She had like curly brown hair and bangs and she was so cute. And there's this picture that I found of her and she's like hugging the neck of this dog. And it's so cute. She was just like a little button. Um, She was the daughter of Suzanne and Jean-Pierre Bloch, and she had a half-brother, Luke, spelled L-U-C, but pronounced Luke. And he was 13 years older than her, so he was 24 when this happened. But I also couldn't figure out which parent he came from, like what side of the family he was the half-brother from. But honestly, it doesn't really matter. He was her brother. So they lived in Fountain Blue, which is kind of like a suburb of Paris is in the Paris metropolitan area. And it's about an hour Southeast of the Paris city center, like the Eiffel tower, all that stuff. I have to take a break. This stupid asshole won't stop biting me. That's Riley's cat. <laughs> That's my cat. <laughs> stupid asshole. Okay. Anyways, on the morning of May 5th in 1986, The family had a normal day, a normal morning. Um, Cecile's parents and older brother actually left the house before her every morning. And then she would just let herself out, take the elevator down and walk to school. And that was super usual for her family. Nothing out of the ordinary. And so after they left, Cecile, like I said, left the apartment, took the elevator down to the first floor so she could walk to school. And the way school worked in France at this time, and I'm sure many other places, uh, was a little different than how it works in, you know, modern day America. And this is because the children were actually able to go home for lunch and walk back to school when lunch was over. So it was kind of like a recess and they could walk home, eat lunch at home because lunch was like an important meal. And she only lived a kilometer away from the school in the city. So it it was an easy walk. They do and, that here in they do that here in Spain. Yeah, yeah, because that's really common. Um, what's it called? Siesta? 
Yeah, siesta is not as big a thing as everyone thinks. It is like everyone goes home for lunch and there's a mm -hmm. good – like the break in the middle of the day is anywhere from like an hour and a half to three hours. And some people nap, but I don't think it's – it's not – it's not like everyone, how so many people yeah. think it is. Yeah, going home for lunch is a very important thing. Not everyone does it because when I worked at a school here, I taught uh, like primary school and secondary school and the secondary school students did not go home for lunch, but they did leave earlier in the day. Uh, they left around when lunchtime is, so they started earlier. Whereas the uh, my my primary school students, they would come in at like nine and stay until quarter past noon, sorry, half past noon. And then they would go home and come back at three. That's so interesting to me just because I never had that experience as a child. But I mean, it's totally normal. And then every day, just after noon, her mom, Suzanne, would call the house to check in on Cecile or the apartment and make sure that she made it home okay for lunch, kind of ask her about her day. But on this day when she called, nobody answered. And this was like super unlike Cecile, like I said, because she was a very responsible kid. Her parents could pretty much always rely on her to be where she was supposed to be when she said she was going to be there. So her mom was pretty worried immediately and thought maybe she stayed at school for lunch today, like hung out with her friends. So she gave the school a call. Um, when she called the school, they actually told Suzanne that Cecile had never even made it to school that day. She wasn't there for attendance and she had never shown up. So no one at school had seen her. None of the administrators, none of the teachers, none of her friends. And obviously this is super worrying because, I mean, she assumed that after she left the house, Cecile got on the elevator, walked to school and had a nice day like she always did. So right after that, she called Jean-Pierre, which is against Cecile's dad to tell him what was going on. And as soon as they hung up on the phone, he called the guards slash doormen at Cecile's building just to alert them to what was happening and kind of ask them if they had seen her that day. Jean-Pierre and Suzanne immediately went back to their apartment and they checked the building and they noticed that Cecile's backpack was not in their apartment. And... Then her dad walked the one kilometer route that it took for Cecile to get to school, but he was not reassured by the vendors along the way, like the street vendors, the food people, the people who sell coffee, because they had even said that they had not seen Cecile that morning on her walk to school or that afternoon on her way back. So if the backpack wasn't there, that definitely means she went to school as usual, right? She definitely left the apartment. Okay. She left the apartment, but none of the vendors on her way to school who usually would see her every morning and would recognize her did not say that they had seen her that day. So back at the building, the guard who was on duty and who had talked to her dad chose not to wait for the police to get there because her parents had also called the police. And he just began searching the common spaces of the building for any sign of Cecile because, I mean, they live in this building and they walk through it every day. So I'm sure this this doorman knew her and he knew the family and like wanted to help as much as he can. Unfortunately, around 2.15 that afternoon, the half-naked body of Cecile was found in the third basement of their apartment building, which if I understood correctly, is like accessible through the parking garage portion of the building like the parking garage is like the ground floor and then there's doors within that parking garage where you can go into 
lower parts of the building, like a basement, and they call it the third basement. And she was found in a technical room that had no lights. Um, an examination of the crime scene revealed that Cecile had been violently overpowered by her attacker and that she was stabbed once in the chest and then strangled. There were no fingerprints found on her or her backpack, but there was a small amount of semen found on her leg, which led police to believe that she had also been raped. That's so awful. I know. I just, I hate these stories because, you know, when you're 11 years old, you have no defense over adults who can overpower you so easily. Mm -hmm. It's so upsetting because she had so much of her life ahead of her. I know. 11 years old. So a search of the family's apartment was conducted by the police and they found pretty much nothing. There was no force entry, no sign of a struggle and no signs of attempted burglary of any sort. But the inspection of the building, however, revealed a lot of information that was kind of odd. You know, like they just found weird things. So the door to the third basement where the technical room was that she had found had been propped open in the days leading up to Cecile's murder. And it had been propped open open by a pack of cigarettes And even her dad had noticed this, like, walking through the parking garage, but he didn't think much of it because, I mean, maybe, like, a janitor just needed to prop the door open because they lost their key or something. And it wasn't weird that he had noticed it because it was in the parking garage. You know, like, he didn't have to, like, be in the basement to find the door to the third basement that was propped open. Also, it's um, cigarettes. A, he probably thought someone just like dropped them. Like yeah, that's not their what pack you use to prop open a door. Yeah, I'm surprised it even held. Like, yeah, especially in in Europe in the 80s, you know, everyone smoked, and so it's like a pack of cigarettes is nothing. They all um, still fucking smoke here. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, additionally, the lights on her floor were not working and only one of the elevators was in service that day. So that morning and that afternoon, only one of the elevators was running up and down for the building. When the police interviewed the family and the other residents of the building, multiple people, including her dad, Jean-Pierre, reported seeing an unfamiliar man in the elevators in the days prior to attack and on the morning of the attack. So this man was described as being about six feet tall, between 25 and 30 years old. He spoke fluent French without an accent because a couple of them had spoke to him. And they also said that he was like polite in an aggressive way, like overly polite, kind of like passive aggressively. And it just like stuck out to them that that was weird, especially because how can you be passive, passive aggressively polite? Like, I think just like, like so polite where it kind of like sounds sarcastic. Yeah. Also, I feel like when you're just, when you see a stranger that you don't really know, you just kind of a little smile, maybe you say hello, but like maybe he was doing more than that. If they got such a sense of his voice, he had to have been talking more. Yeah. And that wouldn't seem weird to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I maybe, maybe it, it might be weird to French people as well. Um, I mean, I haven't spent a lot of time with French people personally, mm-hmm. and I really only have a perspective from Spaniards and Brits who are not huge fans of the French. 
But the French can be a bit, I, as far as I'm aware, the French can be just a bit more, not necessarily closed off. Not that British people aren't closed off. British people are very closed off. Yeah. Um, but, but French people aren't necessarily the type to just like strike up a conversation with you. Like if you mm-hmm. are in an elevator with a French person, there is no social uh, need to start a conversation of any kind. So maybe yeah. they were just like, maybe the passive aggressive politeness was just them just being taken aback by the stranger talking to them at all. Well, what her dad did say is that he showed no emotion at our presence. So he was very polite, but like with no emotion behind it. So I think it just, yeah, very creepy. Like I think it just sounded and felt very off to them. Um, He also had light brown hair and his skin was pockmarked. Like he had suffered from acne earlier in his life and he still had scars. And, um, a couple things that can also leave your face kind of like with those marks and with those scars are things like uh, medications like for schizophrenia and other disorders like that. Um, and because of his appearance and because of his weird behavior in this apartment building's elevators, um, this man became the prime suspect in her case and his appearance coined him the name the pockmarked killer i know you're probably wondering why does he get a name if he only killed cecile but this was actually the second of multiple suspected rapes and killings which i'll get into um just after bella covers a bit about what happened within the courts with this case now, at this time, Cecile's brother, Luke, was a biology student, and he had heard of a new and up-and-coming technique in the world of forensic science called DNA. Just a little something, nothing crazy, nothing Just major DNA. or important. <laughs> no idea what DNA is. But anyway, Luke informed the gendarmerie. Ugh, that was some French. I tried to do the pronunciation correctly. It just came out real <laughs> fucking weird. <laughs> 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 I do not speak French. Okay. Anyway. I wish I did. (laughs) Same. (laughs) See, I'm not too bothered about learning French because now that I speak Spanish, I'm like, okay, well, that's not very interesting because it's so similar. I, when I was in middle school and you could choose what language you wanted to take, I wanted to take French so bad and my parents would not let me. They made me take Spanish. And I think it's marked me for life and I've always wanted to learn French. Your middle school offered French? How bougie. I know. And you could even take German, but you had to go to the high school in the morning for it. See, our high school, because Angelica and I went to middle school and high school together. Our high school, our, I don't think our middle school had language. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. The high school but did. I did and it was, repress most of my middle school experience. So maybe. I don't know. That's fair. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember there being any language options, though. But in high school, the options were Spanish or German. There was no French. Uh, but we had an international academy. That shared a building with us and they had French. They offered French to their students. And I remember talking to um, an international academy student one day and they were just like bragging about how they can learn French, but the people at the regular high school can't even learn French and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, shut the fuck up. You're acting, you're acting very bougie so, and I don't like yeah. it. Especially because French is already seen as like a bougie language. Like, exactly. Dude, I was like, you are even, acting like a French stereotype. So shut the fuck up. Anyone who knows more than one language is impressive to me, no matter what the language is. 
The fact that my boyfriend speaks three and is learning his fourth for fun is both very impressive and also kind of annoying because he corrects my English sometimes and it's not even a native language for him. Also very intimidating, in my personal opinion. <laughs> One time I corrected his Spanish though and it was like the greatest feeling I've ever had in my life. That's like my dad when I was younger. I would also say like me and my friends and he would go, who? And I'd be like, me and my friends. And he'd go, who? And he would say it until I said, my friends and I. And now him and my mom will say it like that sometimes. And I'll go, who? And he'll go, my friends and I. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like the power behind that who is like so strong. Anyway, Luke informed the gendarmerie and the judge about DNA and how they could use the semen from the crime scene to potentially identify the killer, but the judge refused to allow it. And when I researched this part of the case, a lot of, a lot of people were pointing out that this was gross incompetence on the part of the judge. But you have to remember that this was 1986 and DNA profiling was in its infancy. The first arrest ever made using DNA profiling didn't happen until September 1987 in the UK. So I really don't think it's fair to call the judge incompetent or negligent for that reason, because at this time it wasn't yet certain that DNA profiling was a reliable science. I think it's really easy to see this case through our 2020 lenses, but I would argue that the judge made the right call given the time during which all of this was happening. While Luke was right in that DNA testing was already being done in England and Belgium, there really wasn't any legal precedent for it yet, and the judge probably didn't want to risk trusting a science that was so new and arrest an innocent pan, pan. arrest an innocent man. Or he didn't want to potentially ruin his career. Or both. We'll never know, but probably both. I mean, it was it's really great that Luke saw the potential in DNA profiling and was trying to get them to understand um but it just wasn't it wasn't it yet you know and and they also probably didn't want to ruin the dna that they had because if if this thing is still new and they don't have enough dna or they do the tests wrong then that dna sample is ruined and they can't do tests further tests on it in the future mm -hmm. so the judge also might have been thinking well they're developing it now maybe wait a couple years and then mm -hmm. once the science is more developed we'll get a better test run on it exactly i don't know that that's what he said but at this time he wouldn't allow it in court and yeah there's he wasn't a perfect judge because he actually wouldn't communicate uh parts of the investigation with cecile's family and that is shitty you can call him out for that but i don't 100%. think it's okay to call him out for the dna profiling thing because it just, it was so new and it took a, it took a good, I mean, 10, 15 years for people to actually really mm -hmm. start trusting DNA profiling in criminal cases. So I, I don't think it's okay to shit on him for that, but you can definitely shit on him for not sharing information with Cecile's family. Yeah. And so without using DNA profiling and with no other usable evidence from the crime scene, the investigation went cold and the judge had to close it. That is, until 1996, when a new judge opened it and ordered for the DNA to be tested. And in 1998, while they still didn't have the killer's name, they were able to link him to at least three other rapes and two other murders that happened throughout the late 80s and 90s. So let's talk about some of those cases. 
first before Cecile on April 7th, 1986. So about a month before there was Sarah A. And that's the only name that they give for her. And I imagine they chose this name to protect her identity because she was only eight years old when she was raped, strangled, and left for dead by the Pockmark killer just one month before Cecile's murder. Luckily, Sarah A. survived the attack, but we have to believe that he intended for her to be his first murder victim. It just didn't work out the way that he had planned because he strangled her. But what a lot of people don't know is that to strangle someone, it's actually kind of difficult. It takes a while. And most people don't realize that. Well, I don't want to say most people. Most killers who attempt to strangle people don't realize that it actually takes a lot more than is portrayed in movies. And so they mess up a lot with strangulation, especially in their first kills. And I mean, in 1986, it's not like he could fucking Google it. <laughs> How long? <laughs> Goes to the library. How long does it take to strangle a person? <laughs> Do you have any books on strangulation? Oh, God. <laughs> I hope no one asks me that when I'm a librarian. Please <laughs> don't ask me. Sorry, strangulation is not funny. It's just the thought of a serial killer that's like an idiot going to the library checking out a book on strangulation anyways back to the case then in april of 1987 so a year after the first two attacks the pockmark killer committed a double murder his victims this time were gilles politi a 38 year old mechanic and his 20 year old nanny irmgard muller this is so weird to me because i mean the first two they were children i know now, i know that's what's really weird to me too the complete out opposite and it must have been like so much harder to profile him after this because oh, that's I bet. such a difference well let me get to something down here so they were found in gilles apartment and they were naked strangled tied up tortured and burned with cigarettes like they had like cigarette burn marks on them Gilles also had a non-fatal slash wound across his neck, and he ended up being killed by strangulation with a belt and a fire poker tied around his neck and a Spanish tourniquet. I looked up what a Spanish tourniquet is because, because I looked at these cases as well, and I was like, why is it so specifically a Spanish tourniquet. What's the difference? <laughs> and when I typed in Spanish tourniquet, it was just giving me a bunch of translations for <laughs> tourniquet into Spanish. And so I was like, what is a Spanish tourniquet? And I would, I just, I either got the definition of tourniquet or translations. So I think it's just a regular tourniquet. I don't know why there was so much distinction, but it felt wrong to not make the distinction if it was in all of our sources. So when it says, in a Spanish tourniquet, it just means he used the fire poker mm -hmm. to stop the the belt to from tight, going any yeah, further. To, to tighten yeah. the belt. So something else that was really weird about this one is Irmgard's body was staged as if in a satanic ritual. What the fuck? This she is was strangled. So different. I know. She was strangled with electrical wire around her neck and with her throat slashed. And I also believe that her hands and legs were tied kind of around her back, almost in like a hogtied position. And it's believed that the killer and Irmgard were lovers. 
Because there were zero signs of force entry and the neighbors had reportedly seen Irmgard with the killer a few times, they kind of made this assumption, as well as in the apartment, the police found Irmgard's diary that had the names written down of her lovers. Like, she kept a diary of all the all the men that she was with. I love that. I know, right? And there was only one name in there that the police could not trace, and they believe that it was a fake name given to her by the pockmarked killer like he didn't want to tell her his real name because he probably knew he was going to kill her so he just gave her a fake name also and if you're wondering why Irmgard does not sound like a very french name it's because it's not she was from germany yeah so yep, she was from germany <laughs> next we have marianne m who was a 14 year old that was raped on october 26 1987 so about six months after Gilles and Irmgard. Um, the assailant reportedly followed her to her apartment. And I think it's important to mention here that many of the reports about the pockmarked killer said that he would impersonate police officers. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if what happened here was that he said that he was a police officer and walked her home, but then forced his way into her apartment by threat of a handgun because that's what the report said. He threatened her with a handgun. And then she was undressed, tied up, and raped. He then left the scene, but a semen stain was found on her comforter. And in other reports, I also read that he talked with the same jargon as a police officer mm -hmm. and kind of would act like one. I also read in one in one report that he had a walkie-talkie. Did you read that, Bella? Yeah, I read that. Which is interesting to me because with a walkie-talkie, you have to have two sides. So maybe he was just talking into a walkie-talkie to seem important when people walked by and to make it believe like he was a real police officer. Yeah, and I mean, a 14-year-old... An eight-year-old and an 11-year-old probably aren't thinking that critically in that moment, are they? Because it's not no. like he had to do that with Irmgard and Gilles, you know? Because if mm -hmm. he was already sleeping with her, he was just let in. You know, they trusted him. Yeah. But with with these children, it's different. You automatically assume that a police officer or, in this case, someone posing as a police officer is trustworthy. Mm -hmm. So I don't yeah. think that they would have had the thought in that moment to think, oh, no one's replying to that message. But I don't know that I yeah. would either. If a, if a police officer came over to me and like said something into a walkie-talkie and there was no reply, I don't think I would think twice about it. I would be like, oh, shit. That yeah, I'm not sure if I would notice. Yeah. And that also goes along with this next case, the fact that he poses as, as a police officer because in the summer of 1994, which was quite a few years after his last attack that he was connected to formally um an 11 year old girl named ingrid was kidnapped and put in a white sedan so i'm wondering if he stood next to the sedan and pretended to be a police officer and then put her in the car kind of like an undercover car and drove off um and she said it was possibly a volvo or a nissan there isn't much more information that I can find on this specific incident, but I assume that there was some sort of sexual assault because they were able to pull DNA evidence off of her body. They had originally arrested a suspect in this case in October, but the following year he was exonerated due to DNA evidence, that DNA that they had pulled off of her. They tested it and it did not match him, so he was let go. The DNA did, though, 
match the pockmark killer's DNA from Cecile's case and the previous cases. In the year 2000, Ingrid did an interview for France 3 where she explained how she had talked to her kidnapper, asked him questions, and remained calm. And this is believed to be what saved her life because she was so calm in the situation. I would not be calm. (laughs) I would be freaking out. And also, I'm wondering, did she say in that interview, Bella, when she was let go? No, all I all I saw was that she was interviewed and said that she talked to her kidnapper. She asked him questions. She remained calm, and she believes that that's what saved her. But I can't imagine like eleven years old and being calm enough to be able to ask questions and like have a conversation. I with can't a have a conversation with someone who I know. <laughs> Le- like I, I, I know. can't believe that's, she did that. That's amazing. That's that's badassery right there. In addition to the previous rapes and murders that the Pockmark killer was linked to through DNA, he is also suspected to be the assailant in the murder of a 19-year-old Corrine Leroy in 1994. While there was no DNA evidence linking to him to this case that we know of, she was killed in a very similar manner that Gilles and Irmgard were. She was found on her back at the entrance to a wooded area, and she had been strangled with electrical wire tied around her neck. On top of that, the reason why they suspect him to be linked to this is because the area where she was found was pretty close to where Ingrid had been kidnapped originally, so they think that he kind of lurked around this area looking for vi- for victims in that time. This might be completely wrong, but I, mm-hmm. I wonder because Kareen is... 19 was 19 yeah and Ermgard was 20 i wonder if she was another girlfriend of this man because like they were killed so similarly and they're around the same age and they they differ from the other killings so it, it just makes me wonder yeah i didn't even think about that the thing the thing though i don't i'm not so sure just because there was no dna evidence Linking this case? Yeah, yeah. So there was no semen. So, like, there was semen on Irmgard. So I'm not so sure about that theory. Yeah, that's very true. Because the only reason this case is linked is just the manner with which she was killed and nothing else. So it's just speculation. Yeah, it just makes you think. Unfortunately, 22 years later, officials in France have both the pockmarked killer's DNA and fingerprints but he has yet to be identified because no. he hasn't it. committed. I know he hasn't committed another crime that they know of that he's been entered into the system for. With Hold up. His you said, I'm so sorry. You said 22 years later it is much later than 1994 or 1998. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's I'm okay. not going to talk like, anymore this episode without that. Was I was easy. like, <laughs> I was like, I was like, no, I swear I asked Joy that it was 22 years since 1998. <laughs> Didn't you ask my sister to do the math for you? I'm dead. <laughs> oh my God. I was like, 1994, but no, I was born in 1996 and I'm 24. That's not right. But 1998 <laughs> was when they connected all these cases. I'm yeah. a dumbass. I'm yeah. so sorry. Please continue. No, that's okay. So they can't link him to anyone until they have DNA to compare it with. 
And because of this, this case is now the oldest ongoing criminal investigation for the Paris police. And with some commentary at the end of the case, I also wanted to mention that, like Angel said, this case was super interesting to me because his victims seemed to be very different. It's not like he only went for young children or he only went for girls that he dated. He didn't really have a specific type. Besides women that we see, he only he only murdered one male. But it's just so different to see a serial killer who has that kind of range. Well, I'm not so sure. There was a very specific MO posing as a police officer uh, and the ways in which he killed his victims. However, there is a link in that he killed a lot of girls, young women. Yeah. Um, I know, like, Kareen Leroy is not officially linked. It's just speculated she was 19. But all of the, besides Gilles and Irmgard, all the others were very, very young. And if he was sleeping with Irmgard, like, we don't know the full story there. He could have just been over there casually, no big deal. And then just something in him snapped. It may not have been super premeditated. I hesitate to say that he is at all random because there is a specific MO and he does seem to have a type, but yeah. there just been something because it actually was speculated that Gilles and Irmgard were also sleeping together. So there could have been some jealousy that made him snap. It could have been that mm-hmm. one could have been like a crime of passion, you know? But I mm-hmm. think with uh, all of his other victims, there's definitely a specific type that he likes them. He likes he's he's a pedophile. True. True. Also, another thing to remember that's really important in this case is all of these crimes more or less happened pretty far apart because it wasn't happening in the Paris city center. It was happening all around the metropolitan area. And if you haven't been to Paris or don't know much about Parisian geography, Paris is fucking huge. It's so, so big. big. And it's you don't, so you don't realize it until you look at the map and you you see that this happened in Paris, but it wasn't actually city center Paris. The Paris that Cecile lived in was an hour southeast of what people think of as Paris. Mm-hmm. And the other the other incidences happened another hour away from her, northeast. So it's this this huge radius that he was attacking people in. Yeah. When I went to Paris last year, uh, we flew into an airport. It's still considered, it's in Paris, but it's like an hour and a half outside of the city center. And so you got off the plane, you get your shit, and then you have to take, they have a whole bunch of coaches lined up whenever planes land and you, they, they take you to, to Paris. It's much cheaper to fly there though. As, as opposed to, um, what's the big airport called? Uh, there are two, but there's CDG. CDG. That's the one I'm thinking of, CDG. Charles Can ever something. It's, I know the American name, but I can't think of it. <laughs> Anyways, That's a nice that, airport, though. I've been to that airport as well. I know, it's really nice. It's, it's really, nice. really nice. When I flew home to Michigan last year, I had a layover there and it got delayed. And so I was there for like five hours. And I was just chilling in this, it's like retro, but modern at the same yeah. time, the terminal I was in. And they had some fresh uh, chocolate croissants, and I was oh, I was happy. Sounds so good. I love mm, croissants. croissants. That's all I eat when I go to Europe. <laughs> I'd probably the drop pastry. It. The pastries here are awesome. Like Spain's not known for pastries, but the pastries here are still really good. 
better than anything you're going to find in Michigan. <laughs> That's for damn sure. Well, that concludes my episode for today. I do want to shamelessly plug our socials. If you would like to follow us on Twitter or Instagram, we are at True Crime INTL. And if you want to come chat with us in our Facebook group, you can find it by searching True Crime International. And that's all we have for you today. We hope you've enjoyed your stay with us here at True Crime International.